They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my end. Hi everyone, welcome back to our first episode of 2021 of the Untelevised podcast. I'm Mona um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be back. Welcome back guys, I'm Paseo. In case anyone's new to listening to us, good to be back. It was nice to take a little bit of a break, right Mona? Yeah, it was, I, I think almost everyone I've spoken to has kind of expressed that they just completely collapsed when it hit like the Christmas holidays or even to be honest, a lot of people I've spoken to like came back in January thinking they'd had a break and then still felt exhausted. And I don't know whether it was something about that fatigue of the mental fatigue of maybe you psychologically assume that a new year will feel new and will feel different and will feel refreshed. And obviously we just went straight back into lockdown. And I, and I wonder whether for everybody, it just felt a bit like no time has passed and nothing has changed. And the kind of mental fatigue of that. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I definitely felt like exhaustion just suddenly hit <laughs> very heavy. Yeah, no, it, it is difficult. Um, it's definitely very difficult, but hopefully um, the podcast provides some respite for people from, from some of the mundane elements of being in lockdown, uh, especially because it's a podcast all about talking about change. So hopefully <laughs> it inspires <laughs> I love some, that. some change into... <laughs> respite with a little bit of a heavy dose of political theory kind of straight, <laughs> straight back in into 2021. I mean, to be fair, like if anything about like this year has gone by you know has made people which I'm sure it has just like become very existential very reflective question just what on earth you know life is and the meaning of it and and the world we live in then um, this is probably not a bad subject to kind of kick us off with for the new year yeah so um towards the end of last year we we did an episode on capitalism because we realized that Every single episode we did, no matter what the subject, the guests would talk about needing to end capitalism. So so we did an episode entitled So What is Capitalism? where we outlined the principles of capitalism and discussed sort of its main elements. And then today we thought, what better way to kick off than to provide an alternative? Because it's easy to identify problems, but one of the main things in in social change is also trying to look towards solutions. So this episode, we're going to be talking about socialism um, as one of the main proposed alternatives or um, solutions or, yeah, I guess, antidotes to capitalism. Socialism is a word that I guess a lot of people will have heard and the feeling probably is that people have quite a lot of different interpretations of it you know right from thinking that it's some sort of completely radical crazy anarchy to people thinking that what was proposed by Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders in very mainstream political elections was socialism and it's probably you know neither of those two things that I just said um but I guess as a basic place to start if we defined capitalism before as the kind of current system that we live in, you know, where the means of production in a society are owned privately by people and that we have kind of money as a trading system and that people can make money off of one another and off of products and you can have, you know, some people in a society that make loads of money and sort of hold on to the main 
um, land or means of production in a country and other people are workers and they work for a wage and they don't have any ownership over what is produced or what their work kind of in the outputs of their work socialism is, is, is sort of I guess in its most basic form the opposite of that so you have a society where things are owned collectively um, you don't have some people holding on to all the profits of a company for example you know things are produced for all of our good and for all of our well-being and they are created kind of collectively and people in a society all contribute to that but they all do so equally and we all benefit equally um sometimes people talk about that in terms of even the money is distributed equally but actually i think what we're going to hear a bit about today is that in a real socialist state money wouldn't be um, a means by which we trade or a means by which we put value on things actually in a sort of real socialist or you might end up hearing the dreaded word communist as well in 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 this episode in those states money wouldn't actually be uh, a thing like money wouldn't be a factor it would just be that we create things we produce things we do the things that society needs in order to survive um and in terms of maybe this idea of a kind of collective ownership for the benefit of society you know i guess the NHS would be uh, maybe the most obvious or kind of contemporary example of that. You know, it is free at point of entry. It's it's for everybody in theory. You know, we all have access to it. It's for a common good. It's not because it's meant to be making profit for anybody, although obviously we can debate how much that is still the case with the NHS. <laughs> um I think just a couple of words that you're going to hear a lot probably from our guests today that are probably worth defining is um, you will hear proletariat and you will hear bourgeoisie. And essentially, I mean, they really mainly just basically mean the working classes and the upper classes. So the uh, proletariat is working people, people that do not own the means of production, who don't make the profits, who don't own land, etc., but have to work for others. And then the bourgeoisie um, are your, the upper classes, the people that do own land companies and maybe even influence, you know, who under, who own things like media and government and, and the way that our country is essentially ruled and hold that control. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is that when we were looking into it, and first, before I say this, I would advise anyone who hasn't listened to the capitalism episode to go back and listen to that, because I think it gives great context for everything we're going to talk about today. But what's very interesting is um, capitalism and some of the things that the guest in that episode speaks about is the fact that capitalism has been the system for a couple of centuries. So it's very hard for people to imagine anything else. But actually, when we were looking into it, it was found that people in Britain identify with socialism more than capitalism and actually favour it more when asked. The only group that was found to favour capitalism or view socialism unfavourably were those over 60. So it very much seems that as generations pass by, more and more people are tending to favour socialism. And I think, you know, one thing that we very shockingly found out in our capitalism episode, you know, was that teaching about alternatives to capitalism has actually been sort of banned in schools you know it's not encouraged you don't hear about that history you know and so actually a lot of people um, as Fizeo said they really like the idea when you say to them you know we could all be better you know we could all be more compassionate to each other we could own things collectively you know people like that I mean let's just look at the way that 
everybody, almost regardless of political leanings, seems to love the NHS, right? And so what, what is that about? You know, where, where does that come from? So when people see it in practice and see it somewhat working, and again, you know, we could definitely discuss ways in which the NHS could be working better and so on. But in principle, when people see it, they don't dislike it. And so the issue seems to just be that they don't understand how it could come to be or what the practicalities would look like. And that feels overwhelming and that feels off-putting. And the conclusion is it won't work. Yeah. Um, but actually, if you allowed people to literally read books and texts and things that showed you how it might work, um, that probably would change. I mean, there's very few things in this world, I think, that we could argue literally don't work, right? I mean, we already have a COVID vaccines for something that a year ago we'd never experienced before. So I don't know whether this idea that as a human, as a human race, we can't be innovative enough and creative enough is true, but people are not shown how, if anything, they're discouraged from understanding how. Yeah, exactly. Um, that that ability to imagine or being allowed to imagine um, dominates a lot of the conversation with our guest this week. So I think it's best to to pass the mic to to our guest, um, and we can return and discuss exactly what you've just said um, after after she's given us a few more of the facts. So our guest this week was actually my first ever guest on our first ever episode where we spoke about uprisings. So this is a bit of a full circle moment for me. <laughs> Azar is a lifelong activist from Iran who's fought for socialism for her whole adult life and actually her activism led to her having to flee her home country of Iran in 1984 as a political refugee and she's never been able to return since. She's also a lifelong campaigner for women's equality, a broadcaster, a writer, a former editor of the Farsi women's magazine Medusa and she's hosted radio shows and political TV programmes. So who better to talk to, really, about socialism than someone who has fought for it and embodied its principles for as long as they can remember? Socialism really means to end capitalism. But nowadays, it seems to me that social democracy has come to replace the definition of socialism that we have had traditionally and classically, like it was, it was, it was really kind of funny to me that people talk about Bernie Sanders as a socialist. Bernie Sanders is not even as radical as Jeremy Corbyn was in UK. He's always been a senator. He's always been in the minority, but part of the ruling classes in the US. He only defended very little social welfare, just forgiving the loans of the students, like, and you know. Um, writing it off, and also maybe healthcare, and raising the minimum wage, $2, $3. This is not socialism. This is a different kind of reformist movements that you would have to just reduce the injustices. It's welcome. I'm not saying anything like that. But to me, socialism is getting rid of capitalism. So you, you, you all do not have different classes in the society. Socialism is not to reduce the differences or the gaps between the capitalist class or the ruling class and the working class. It's to get rid of them both. This is to me socialism. So if anyone is really interested, I, I would say, go to Marx. 
Communist Manifesto is a brilliant piece of work. And it's, I'm, it, don't think I'm an ancient person coming out of the antiquity. Actually, in the past few years, I've seen that the search in Google for Marx as a historian or economist is at the top. It makes me feel good. There are a lot of people, especially young generation, who are trying to find their answers in Marx. So there's so much that you said there and many terms that you brought up that I would like to explore in, in what we speak about today. You spoke of communism that I want to talk to you more about. You spoke of capitalism, which is something we have um, covered in the past. And you spoke of um, figures like Bernie Sanders and Corbyn, which is something I also wanted to ask you about and how they've been described as modern day socialists, I guess, and why that might happen. But I want to come back to this again, because I, I think um, in order for us to explore all of these themes, people need a base understanding, just a really simple understanding of, of what we're discussing here. Maybe the easiest way to do it, as you said, socialism is an end to capitalism, would be to ask you then what you identify, how you identify capitalism, and then we can attack it that way. As long as you have two different classes, one living off the labor of the other side, that's capitalism. So if you want to get rid of capitalism, you cannot just reform and make the exploitation less horrible. You have to get rid of classes, money, exploitation. This is what it is. This is what capitalism and socialism stand as Marxism would have it. So how in real terms might a socialist society work or look like for people in their everyday lives? See, what it is, you need a revolution because the ruling classes, the bourgeoisie will not give in, will not give up its privileges and its position. So you need to use force against them. Not that you, because you wanted to. I would love to see all the capitalists say, okay, oh, this is to you, and, but that's, that's, won't, that won't happen. You need a revolution. And for a revolution, you have to organize. You need organization. You need hard work, everyday work. Not many people would come to you, but there are times in the society that a lot of people are attracted to this idea. For example, we had the uh, 2008-9, um, that big crisis we had, they call it financial crisis, which was one of the routine and regular uh, crisis of capitalism. Then a lot of people became interested. In those times, you can, you have a chance to create what you think is the answer. Not every day. You cannot every day have people coming to you. You need to organize. So when that time comes, you have a place for people who want to change to come to. This is what it is. And this is what I've been doing in my life. If you look at my life, people might say, well, you have you have fought for 40 something years. You're not successful. What are you talking about? Yes, that's true. You could say that, but there is something in Communist Manifesto, it thesis, a sentence saying, the history of the hitherto societies have been 
the history of class struggle, the oppressed against oppressor, so on and so forth. I believe this thesis is as valid as the law of gravity. So whether you want it or not, you look at the history, all the time people are fighting, workers are fighting, people without privilege are fighting in different ways. Just look at the history. Even Britain, don't, don't have to go far. There hasn't been a day you look at the history that the people without privilege, the oppressed, the exploited, have not fought against the exploiters and the ruling classes. So you spoke you spoke a little bit earlier about figures like Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, etc., being uh, described as socialist, um, and in a way, you've said that you feel that it's almost been co-opted. Why do you think that the term socialism or socialist has been co-opted in this way? Well, socialism has attraction. Whether you want it or not, no matter how much the ruling classes have tried to trash this concept, to laugh at it, to ridicule it, the good ones calling it utopia, the, the mean ones doing a different thing, socialism has attraction to people. Why? Because however you think of it, you feel a sense of justice. And that is what is important. People search justice, a, a better world. And that's why when they could not just by ridiculing socialism, by trashing it, making it go away, making it disappear, they adopted it and gave it another meaning. Whether they, everybody did it consciously or subconsciously, I don't, I, this is not my issue. My issue is, this is the ruling classes are incredibly savvy and they have all the means and tools to do it. And they do it, they do it. They make us see things more superficially. Maybe sometimes there are people who think, okay, if I cannot, get to the what goal I have, let's do at least something towards that goal. So I compromise. I compromise my goals and aim and ideas and fight at least to bring a little bit of justice to people. Maybe Corbyn has dwelt on that and decided that. I don't know him. But Bernie Sanders was no socialist at all. There is difference between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, because there is difference between US and Europe. In US, the word socialism and communism is taboo. And this is from the Cold War period. So it's interesting when now they talk about socialism, like a few years ago, I read something that over 50% of the young generation, like up to 30 years old, in the US consider themselves socialists in the terms that they're against capitalism. Definitely, they don't think of capitalism and socialism the way we talk today. But this says, despite all they did to tarnish the word socialism, it's come up like that in the society whatever they understand from it. So Sanders becomes the figure of socialism. So that's why when they cannot 
write off something, then they try to write it differently in their own interpretation, with their own words. This is the way they go for it. I think it's important at this point for us to define or try to discuss the idea of communism because it's something that's coming up quite a lot. Um, so in terms of socialism, where does communi communism fit? Is it sort of a sliding scale with capitalism on one side, communism on the other, and socialism somewhere in between? Or are they very, very similar things or are they completely different? How, how would you describe communism in, in the context of socialism? How it is, is they've just talked about as two, two phases of communism. Like you, you start with a revolution, you take power from the bourgeoisie and the ruling classes, the workers do, you create a worker state from that, so you, you still have certain part of capital's relations in the country. You try to take care of the injustice that, that comes from that to, for example, uh, make everything that's necessary in life free of exchange money. Housing, education, health, transport, and food, at least in the beginning you would take them out of market. So everyone has the right to all of these. It might be in the beginning, not very much, but then it would grow. Then you don't have to work nine to five, five days a week. You work as much as is necessary, as much as you can do. You work according to your ability and you get according to your needs. This is the main thesis of communism. Some people come and say, how do you do this? How do you do this? How? I said, I don't know. We know the rules. We know how the mechanism, but whatever happens in detail is something that's going to come up later. Just when we had feudalism and then feudalist system got, you know, there was a bourgeoisie rising got rid of feudalism and started capitalism, who knew what would happen? It happened. It changed. I'm sure if you asked a serf at the time of feudalism that you're going to become a free laborer, go to town and sell your working power, he would look at you and say, what? He would have no clues of being a so-called free laborer who can sell his labor power because his whole life was owned by someone. It was almost like slavery. So it, this is very simple. I'm sure if you want to engage in a theoretical debate, you have to go to more details and be more precise. I, I, I understand, but I'm just saying it, trying to simplify what it, what it means. So this is the difference between socialism and communism. But why Marx and Engels use the word communism? Marx and Engels did not invent this word. They took it from the working class movements of their own time. Workers who fought in Europe at that time, part of them called themselves communists or they talked about communism. So they chose, they took that word from the working class. So when you look at it, its origin is in working class movements for justice. 
to get rid of capitalism. But there is one thing, people, some people, even the ones who consider themselves Marxists, they're a bit weary of, to, of using the word communist because they have tarnished this word so much that even some people, some Marxists have internalized these tarnishes and they don't feel comfortable to call themselves communists. When I say I'm a communist, people look at me as though I'm somebody coming from, from moon. But I say it, I'm not gonna allow all those acts of tarnishing and ridiculing or demonizing communism to affect me and I'm gonna defend it. It's as just as it can be, is as beautiful as it can be, and is difficult, I know, but communism is all about justice, a better world, equality, and freedom. You speak of revolution as being the first step, and I know that you yourself have been involved in a revolution. Um, I want to encourage people to listen to our first episode on uprisings to learn more about that in detail. But just really briefly for the people that are listening today, what might a revolution of this kind look like or involve? Oh, wow. There are similarities, but no, no two revolutions are the same. Look at the history. You had the French Revolution. You had the Russian Revolution. You had the revolution in Iran, you had revolution in, you know, in a different way in China, or you had it in Africa, you had it in Cuba, and they each look differently. First, definitely it has people involved. You have people on the streets, people coming and demanding their rights, and they feel militant, they feel empowered, um, they feel they can do it, they feel, they feel it's possible, they feel... It, they're, they're ready to, to put their life on, on the spot to, to, to reach it. These are the emotions that, you know, go through someone who's involved. But it is a social movement. You cannot just decide to organize a revolution. It's impossible. The moment comes, and then you call it a revolution, when actually you see what is about to change. So if you, for example, look at what they called um, Arab Springs, um, you could call that revolution or not, but it was a decision made subconsciously by the people, and they all came together. You need that moment, definitely. You cannot call something a revolution when you don't have that part. It's an, in, it's an important and essential ingredient of it. But to me, now when I look at it, a revolution at the same time is when you have an organization, a party, uh, which has a very clear strategy, a program, and then it can bring the working class and the people, organize some, not the majority, not necessarily, and they want to change something very radically. For example, the revolution I took part in in 1978-9 in Iran, that had the ingredient of people on the streets, soldiers shooting at you, you had to hide, some people died on the streets, people coming and shouting with slogans, people were not afraid anymore, they didn't care less, they just came, they looked at the soldier and you know spit on the soldier and uh, arms up, all of that, all of that. And at the same time, there was a different uh, kind of feelings 
um, it, it feels like the people's psychology changed. A feeling of solidarity, a feeling that we belong to something. I know I did not answer very... No, I, I was conscious that I was asking you a, to answer a very yeah. complex yeah. and difficult question in, but this um, is in a theme. short time period. But I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode because you expanded on uprising and revolution a lot more there and there was some exactly. more nuance you were able to put some more nuance because we had slightly longer time to speak but yeah. I just wanted to make sure that even that if people hadn't listened to that they could still be involved and imagine what you're speaking about in this conversation so earlier you mentioned that socialism cannot be about reducing in individual inequalities but I know that for example I spoke in the introduction to you about the fact that you're an advocate for women's rights. So how do we deal with the ills of capitalism, things like white supremacy, racism, sexism, but at the same time as trying to overhaul sort of like the entire system? Yes, to my opinion, having fought for women's rights, I can really say for, you know, since I was five years old in different shapes and forms, and then also race, I realized that we have to fight, not that we don't have to tackle. We have to tackle every, every single issue, but we have to have that bigger perspective. You cannot get rid of racism in the society, to my opinion, as long as you have capitalism. You cannot get rid of uh, gender inequality as long as you have capitalism. Why? because capitalism needs, needs to put people against each other, needs that division, needs that internal fight because this is the way it can actually put you down. So a white person and a black person might fight each other. A black worker and a white worker, you see racism sometimes among white working class in Britain, in US, in France. That's good for uh, capitalism, that kind of fight, or women worker or men worker, but it doesn't stay only in the working class. It becomes in the whole, it comes into the whole society because to my opinion, is the ruling class's ideology, narration, dominant ideology in the society. But my point is we have to address every single oppression, injustice in the society as the single issue but then try to define it in that whole big picture, which if you like is a class uh, uh, difference and class war and class uh, issue, and then try to reach for that big goal. Otherwise, we're just gonna continue and repeat the history over and over and over again. So what you're describing, um, socialism as a system, sounds ideal to me, not necessarily the process, which sounds very tough, um, but the outcome. But what might be some of the main criticisms of socialism and or communism? Well, to be honest with you, I don't have any criticism myself, but you hear criticism from uh, different political trends or philosophers, writers, politicians, or ordinary people. Ordinary people get their, their ideas from what the ideas that come through, as I always call it, dominant ideology, uh, through the media, press, uh, all, um, books, and all sorts of things. So I, I believe 
all those criticisms have answers and we have given answers to them, at least in the movement I was active in. So instead of me saying what criticism are, maybe if you mention them, then we can talk about them because many people, okay, I can mention, they say socialism is forgetting the individual and you put something called collective over the individual, so there is no individual liberty or individual identity. That's just rubbish. That's just rubbish. Marx talks about you can be one day a painter, one day a fisher, one day a, a carpenter, one day a poet. This is the height of individual development. So you can get no idea of like, sort of indiv individuals are forgotten. Individualism is different. Individualism is what Margaret Thatcher puts forward and takes, you know, has the flag for. Individualism actually means dehumanizing a person, an individual, because you have to only think about yourself and in very narrow way, thinking about you and your success and your da da da. That's individualism. But individual as meaning an individual human being who can develop their creativity, their, 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 their talents, their skills, or whatever, actually socialism is the place to do it. Because you don't have to worry about whether you have uh, food on the table at the end of the day. You don't have to be worried that you're going to be homeless one day and be on the street. You don't have to worry about being just alone yourself and no one cares about you. See, this actually creates a situation that you can develop yourself fully. They say there is no democracy, but I said democracy in the meaning of parliamentarian democracy is no freedom. You go every four years, vote for somebody, goes there and actually votes for everything that's against your, your interests. But you have a collective decision-making that everybody, everyone can take part in it and try to reshape or reshape the society in different ways. Yeah, I, I think the the idea, the notion of individual development and um, innovation is one that I've certainly heard critics speak of. Um, and the idea that if money is not motivating people, then people will lose motivation um, and society will become stagnant. And I think you responded to that there. And actually, I think that this past year has given us a good insight into that. There have been many people who have had um, maybe their jobs in terms of the traditional capitalist notion of jobs and work um, paused because of the pandemic and actually have been um, either furloughed, made redundant, etc. And people still found ways to create, to contribute to society, to develop themselves. I believe things like um, learning languages has um, gone through the roof or the different activities that people have been able to do. So actually maybe we've been given a slight snapshot of obviously not an exact snapshot of what um, human progress might be like if we were to remove the notion of going into an office every day, um, exchanging money for labor, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, they just, you actually put your finger on a very, very interesting and very essential point. Without money, people have, would not have incentive to do anything. Really? Are we so low? Are we really so devoid of any kind of creativity, humanity, talents that only money can make us uh, run for something? 
I mean, just 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 the notion of this uh, attributing these uh, uh, qualities to human beings shows what a co corrupt and um, uh, horrible and cruel system capitalism is. You mentioned my pandemic. You mentioned the good parts that people started re seeing and realizing and trying to find life in different ways, which is great. But there was also the, that dark side that everyone knows. Do you think if we lived in a socialist society, would a pandemic like that create this much misery, this many deaths? Would do, did, would we have to decide whether we would give a resuscitation to a 65-year-old or a 55-year-old or a 20-year-old? Would we go through this social Darwinism? No, no. Humanity was there and we had developed and we would have developed enough tools and enough um, means to take care of us as human beings. And of course, if that then came necessary, everybody would try to be for another person. So all this criticism to me are just a way to try to tarnish socialism, to take to move people away from the attraction that socialism might, might have because everyone down there wants justice. Not by everyone, I mean whoever is an ordinary citizen wants justice, wants a better world, more equality, more freedom, everybody. And when they hear about socialism that says all these things are possible if you do this, then something, something, you have to do something. If you don't want people to be attracted or drawn to socialism, then you start tarnishing its face and its values and what it stands for. But uh, otherwise, yes. Uh, no, just on the point that you just spoke about and the example that you gave with um, the hospitals and those decisions, etc. if money was removed, certainly it would appear that those decisions would also be removed because it wouldn't be equating life with finance, essentially. But one of the critiques, that, it reminded me of one of the critiques of socialism that I did see that argued that um, if you were to bring Marx's thought to the present day or to modern society, the idea of things like climate change and the scarcity of resources would actually mean that um, there might not be enough for to go around. I, I would like to um, to know your, your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very unvalid criticism. The, actually, if you took money, competition and um, exploitation out of the whole uh, system, then why would you have to abuse the climate so much? What, I mean, a lot of things, see, for example, one of the things I just recently read, that's why I remember fashion is one of the enemies of climate. All the waste, all this production of other things we don't need, all throwing away, polyester, all of that. Okay, but who does that? Fashion is sort of driving the, the world into madness for money, for money and nothing else. Why would I need to change my, my um, clothes every day and throw them out? All of that, I mean, I'm just giving you a very simple example, fashion. Or think about all this production that go just, that are things that we don't need and are produced just to make money and we buy them and we buy them and then we throw them out. We just leave them there. So if you take the money out of the equation, if you take profit out of the equation, 
then actually we can take care of climate much faster, much more efficiently and change the whole thing. How sustainable do you think it is? Um, so in essence, if we're to say that money being removed creates an e a more equal society, do you think that um, people will find natural ways to create exclusion or do you think it's a sustainable way to live? Um, I, I guess in essence, what I'm saying is, is it money, the tool of money, or is it sort of like a deeper ill that creates these inequalities? Is the drive for profit. Is the drive for profit that puts two main classes, the capitalists uh, and the working class, opposed to each other, and then all of us around that find our own place closer to this class or the other class. Uh, so it's not only about money, it's about profit and exploitation. If you take that away, how sustainable it is, if you have really taken rid of the roots, I think it's very sustainable. You I don't know if people find other things. I mean, I cannot see from now, but definitely those kinds of maybe psychological or whatever um, issues that come, they would have different roots and they would be dealt with in a different way and would not manifest itself in the way we see in racism or gender inequality or um, definitely class. Uh, I cannot say everything, but I can say when you take the root of something, then that thing would not be able to grow. That's all I can say. What forms it takes, how it happens, I, I can't just guess. But definitely, I'm not saying jealousy would be gone. Still, you might be in love with someone and that person goes with someone else. You feel jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or is, is, you, you, you saw someone is creating great, Piece, piece of music and you want to do that, you might feel jealous. Of course, these things- There'll still be all of the nuances of everyday life. Yeah, <laughs> but it would not take this horrible shape that we see it now. Our guest in the capitalism episode referenced arts and the creative arts and creative education as really in, and a really important part of finding alternatives to capitalism because of its relationship to um, imagination and deepening imagination and imagining different possibilities and discussions around imagination. Do you um, agree with that sentiment that arts and arts education and creative education are important? I agree that arts is a very important part of our life, especially music. <laughs> and I think it should be, you know, really, really, we should help grow it more and more and not allowing people's imagination die. That's definitely important. But as a means of finding um, alternative to capitalism, no, I don't agree. I think the alternative to capitalism is socialism. And I believe socialism will allow the art grow as much as it's possible and it would help it grow because this is what humans need, what this is what humans want. And in that situation, when you, there is no restrictions of money and class and all of that, you would be able to develop and to commit yourself to it. But art as a means of finding alternative no i'm sorry i do not agree i think there needs to be an economic political uh, response to a political economics uh, system i guess my next question would be 
Do you believe that it's a theory or um, a viewpoint that would need to be adopted globally in order to work or can it exist um, in isolated states and countries? Well, exactly. The, what, that has been a question, is a very good question. And there have been a lot of debates in the in, in uh, socialist movement about it. For example, about the Soviet Union, they talked about whether socialism is in one country possible or not, Trotskyism and you know, a lot of uh, theoreticians work on it. And some people said, no, socialism in one country is not possible. So actually was accepting defeat. So let's, let's just do it global. I mean, you cannot do it global. Even Marx says you have to first um, come to terms, deal with your bourgeoisie in your own country first. You can, because the, we are now, unfortunately, divided in different borders and you have different governments. So I cannot start a revolution in the world. That's stupid. It's not possible. I can work for changing the world. So I have to eat it. I, I don't, I mean, I mean, we or one has to first um, come to terms with the system and with the ruling classes of its own society or country, if you like. So yeah, I think, yes, it's possible, it's, very, it's, it's more difficult. Maybe then you cannot get rid of state completely as long as you have enemies from the outside who want to fight you. And you need to keep that socialist phase maybe longer in the sense that you still need a kind of government and people have to be aware that they might have military attacks or you have to, de have to deal with other countries for import, export stuff, I, I'm not going to get into those details. But I think, yes, it is possible. It is possible to get, get rid of capitalism via revolution, a workers' revolution in one country. But how much you can reach that final goal in one country, that's up to experiments and experience to what you can do. I don't think you can totally get all of it, but the socialism itself is possible. Yeah, I think for me, it's because obviously in a globalised society, everyone's so intrinsically linked that um, I wonder how much autonomy individual states even have and how I can see how these things interact. But for the people that are interested in starting on this journey or trying to further the cause, whilst we're still existing in a capitalist society, what would you say that people can do and start to introduce into their everyday lives? Um, any practical tips for some things that people can immediately do to start working towards change? First of all, I think we need to do some reading. Mm -hmm. We cannot avoid this classical literature. They're not antiquated literature, really, they're not. They're very much relevant to, to our life today. Sometimes you read Marx and Engels and you say, oh my God, it's as though they're, they're just now talking to you. And then you probably need not to read it alone. It would help if you have people to, as a debate sort of kind of society, or have circles of reading it and talking about it and trying to reach. It's a very, could be a very social, for me it was very enjoyable to do it in a circle of all people when we read it. This is one thing we need to do, but in everyday life, look at workers go on strike. They have to go on strike. They have no other way, but that to me, it's very a bit cliche, the school to revolution. It is pro everyday protest for a better life. I'm not saying go read that, make a party and forget about everyday life. No, actually every day you have to fight for changes in your society, real changes. 
and try to get people on board on fighting for these different changes. Fight for school meal, fight for better NHS. All of that is part of it, but having that goal and trying every day to also see how difficult it is, as long as you have capitalism, to even achieve those little games. Why does somebody have to go every day, get up in the morning, go to work, come back, tired, exhausted, having to be bullied at work? What is this life? So what do you do? You drink to forget. You use drugs to forget. Then you bully someone else because you've been bullied yourself. You bully that work, you come home and you bully your wife and children. All of that, this is part of capitalism. So you, what you want to, these are all the things that you could get rid of. It's just the whole question of, it, it's not easy. I'm, no, I'm sure many people who are listening to me say she's the utopian. I'm not, it's not easy, I realize that. But this is the only answer. We've tried everything. If you're a human, humane person, if you, if you burn for justice, then this fight gives your life a meaning as a human being that you know you're doing something for a better world. So what you do, you fight for small changes while you have your eyes on that big goal and you organize for that big goal. Okay, so... Um... Obviously, I conducted the interview, so what did you think of it, Mona? It's <laughs> <laughs> very formal, conducted the interview. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we knew from the first podcast we did, right, that this, this guest is just, you know, very passionate, um, very deeply entrenched and embedded in their field, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I never doubted that it was going to be another kind of um, similar explosion of conviction which is what we need I think you know um I actually remember uh I remember working on a on a screening tour with the director of a film years ago um about the London riots and he'd made a film where he'd given a completely alternative view of the riots right he'd completely argued for the point of like why people were uprising and you know so on and in one of the screenings we did or in fact quite a few of them in the audience people would always ask the question do you feel you should have given more balance? Like, should you also maybe have interviewed the police and, you know, so on? And he just responded and said, all of those views are available plenty. Like, in the one film I make that gives another perspective, I don't need to give even five minutes of that film to that view because that's the view you're hearing every single day on the BBC, in the mainstream news, et cetera, I'm still not even close to kind of, you know, tipping the scales or evening the balance. And so I think something about speaking to someone again who just goes, nope, <laughs> it, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. Like if you don't even do that when you're up against so much, um, then you don't really stand a chance actually. Um, so I felt like to have that level of, of conviction and um, I mean, really, it couldn't really get any more profound than saying fighting for it is the meaning of life. Like, I mean, that, mm. like, <laughs> you know, if anyone's searching for a meaningful life of life, like, here you go. Like, this is the one. No, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I completely agree. And what a powerful way to put it. Um, even in the statements about continuing to identify as communist and despite all of the different ways that, 
you might fall under criticism or the word might be co-opted or the negative associations continuing to identify that is almost okay I don't want to say it's as important but it's a very important part of mm-hmm. of, of of the ideology um so yeah no I I completely agree I think what was interesting to go back to what you spoke about um earlier in our conversation was the idea of actually there is maybe no easy way to do this you actually have to just do some homework and to read and to to learn about some of these principles um and through that learning you will maybe have access to opening your possibilities um and actually she identified some very specific books and texts that will help along that learning so communist manifesto was was one of those i know that's a book you yourself have read I have it right here. And if only we were on TV and not like a podcast, I'd hold it up right now and I'd flick through the pages. Um, I I actually really want to emphasize to people um, the Communist Manifesto is such a short book. Like I literally think it's about 60, 70 pages. Um, the one I hold in my hand here cost three ninety nine, um, but as Fizeo pointed out to my me, my very ancient soul is that they're all available now in kind of PDF files online. So we're going to try and link you to one. So I just want to say to anyone that thinks that that title sounds a bit overwhelming or a bit daunting, it really, really isn't. Um, it's it's a really easy read actually, um, and it just breaks down in really plain and simple terms actual steps, actual methods, you know, practical information on how it might look. Because like we said before, people might think it's a really lovely idea, but the argument back is always, yeah, but would it work though? And does it work though? And how does it work though? And I thought one of the things that, as I said, that was really interesting was if you'd presented capitalism to somebody before it began, you know, if you said to them, this is how we're going to run things, or if you said to somebody, you will go out to work nine, 10 hours a day um, for somebody else, you they'll get the money, you won't, you'll get a smidgen of that money, you will be exhausted, you'll have to ask permission from them if you want time off, if you want to see your kids, if you want to go on holiday, would you have signed up for it? Would you have gone, that sounds like a great system, I can't see any flaws in that, sign me up, like, I just, I just don't think, people would and to say that it works as in properly works you know doesn't have flaws is is ridiculous and I think we again if if any time should ever have shown us that I guess this past year should have yeah yeah and I think there's um a level of uh radicalism even in just learning um learning Mm -hmm. to learn and learning and expanding your ideas I think it's one of the things that we've kind of lost as a society we very much have periods where we're taught where we're quote-unquote learning maybe in school or in university and still like you mentioned what we're allowed to learn is very it's it's controlled it's um I think you made the point that it's not just money that the um the upper classes control it's also knowledge it's also all other elements of society so just learning to learn um I think is a really important thing to do and also I think there's a lot of excitement um existing in what's not contained in that book so having that book and seeing the principles um is really important to have a foundation but then the imagination and the possibilities outside of what's contained in there for me is and the experimentation and all of those part of things as is the exciting stage of um sort of moving forward as a society 
Yeah, and it's definitely, of course, worth noting that, yeah, this book was written a while ago and it therefore might not be referencing case studies and examples that you know, like, oh, you know, this ex this experiment that took place two years ago. But just take the theories, take the principles and then see how they might like apply to things like like the NHS, right? Like just sit, take that and go, cool, that's obviously based on that kind of theory. Um, and also worth noting that there are so many contemporary writers, thinkers, commentators, etc., that will have made, like, that will have commented on these older books. Um, and I'm sure there is probably infographics, there's probably quick little YouTube tutorials, there's probably a lot of much more digestible stuff that you can access that nonetheless still goes over these theories if maybe you still don't quite want to pick up a quite old book that maybe has language that isn't the most maybe common language to you right now but I do still want to say that it is a, a an accessible and very very short book um, if nothing else and then coupled with that that sort of reading and the theory again was the practice and we always do like to leave you with some practical things you can do so reading is one practical thing and then again um Oza kind of repeated the same thing that a lot of our guests repeat which is to just do those small actions within your remit that can make a change um and looking at those small wins alongside like the <laughs> the bigger massive fight which is total system change um and like you said, she identified it literally as the meaning of life, um, fighting for those small wins. And I just want to remind people that in our previous episodes, we've had guests that have shown us what the results of those small wins are. So in our workers' rights episode, for example, things like minimum wage, all of mm. these things, five-day weeks, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things were achieved by, you know, constant fighting. Definitely, and I, and I feel like, you know, I, I actually find that a lot of mm, people around me, like, not maybe my, my closest friends who are more maybe live more like I do but you know acquaintances and people around me they'll quite often say things to me like oh it must be so lovely to do work that like has meaning or oh you know I sometimes wish that I, I did that and then you're like well why why don't you like if you're kind of sitting here and acknowledging that maybe I actually draw more job satisfaction than you so to speak well then you're already acknowledging like an element of game that I get from that work. And I feel like when people analyze what they should do with their lives, they literally think that the only um, profit, literally, that maybe you can get from a job is the monetary profit. Now, if you're miserable and you're getting the monetary profit, that's still the better choice. And actually, like if your health deteriorates, if your happiness deteriorates, etc., then really have you chosen the path that literally has the greatest turnover? depends on how we measure turnover right or how we measure profit I'm using very capitalist words but I'm hoping that that is what's going to resonate with people but there is a lot of other ways to measure value and yes. as I was saying it just feels good like you get up every day with with passion in you with purpose in you you know what you're doing with your day you feel driven um and that actually if we're saying that it's simply just good to care about people and be compassionate to people then that it's just a version of scaling that mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a form of taking back some power and control, isn't it? And creating the world that you want to exist in sort of your everyday actions. Um, and I really like the idea that ultimately, even if it feels like you're constantly fighting in a sense in, in, the, in the overall picture, um, 
it gives your life an overall purpose and not reaching the end goal doesn't necessarily mean an unsuccessful life because mm-hmm. every day you've lived successfully in the fact that you've lived towards a set of principles that make sense and have contributed positively to the world. I think also one of the things that really kind of sits, sits with me is that we're probably realising more and more that the people who genuinely have something to lose by taking this risk of a better society is probably like a much smaller percentage of people like if you look at how tough life is for a Mm. lot of people is it that big of a risk to have a take a gamble at something else like actually a lot of people probably would still stand with a lot to gain as well um and this idea that there's only potential risk, there's only loss, we could only go backward if we gave it a bash. Like I find it, I've always found it really interesting that capitalism actually promotes in every other way, risk-taking, right? You're supposed to be kind of like risk-taking with investments and with shares and stocks, and we should always try and innovate and we should always try and create better products. And even if we've got like an iPhone 6, we'll create an iPhone 7. But when it comes to our actual society, Oh no 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 don't don't try and create an iPhone seven like just let's just let's just kind of stick with what we have because you know we know it and it's and it's good enough. That would actually never be the way that a company would run. But yeah, we've um, we've given you a lot of food for thought, and this episode I think we've accepted is just uh, maybe the main action is go off and read, and that learning needs to be done if we really want to challenge um, the status quo. So we're definitely going to put links to as many materials as we can refer you to. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have really good, like, have you found good resources? Have you found maybe, again, like, not um, written resources? Have you got cartoons, infographics, tutorials, YouTube videos that you think people should, should, should see or listen to? Then please send them to us and we will add those as well. Exactly. Um, And as always, guys, please, one of the main ways that you can also keep learning and and expanding um, your possibilities is by listening to us. (laughs) So please do um, follow, subscribe, rate, review um, and continue to give us your feedback and thoughts. Like we always say, this is a place for exploring the possibilities and creating a toolkit. So it's not based on necessarily trending topics. It's based on principles, theories and trying to create sort of like a timeless toolkit. Um, so if there's anything you think we should discuss anyone you think we should talk to as a guest please do keep sending those in you've got some choices you can either come to us on our instagram or twitter which are at untelevised underscore tv or you can email us at talk digit to untelevised at gmail.com and we really love hearing from you uh so we'll see you next time Idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't wanna come down from my feet. All planning on starting ground from my ground. My ground is a cloud.